And as Christians, looking back with these New Testament eyes, we can see that indeed these are songs about Jesus. Many of them are um, quoted even in the New Testament, explicitly connecting them with the person and work of Jesus. And so our first one here is Isaiah 42, uh, verses 1 through 9. Let's give our careful attention to the reading now of God's holy word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. May he add his blessing to it this morning. Well, we live in a day where people are desperately searching for two things, for lasting peace and for true justice. Especially during the busy holiday season, we could find ourselves overwhelmed at times. We could find ourselves stressed out and anxious about many things. And and we long for comfort. We long for peace. We long for rest. And sometimes we could find ourselves running to many different things to help bring us that satisfaction and peace and comfort that our hearts are yearning for. Uh, Moreover, we live in a world where we long for true justice. We want to see more and more a society that reflects God's righteousness and goodness. We long, don't we, as we look out into this world to see injustice done away with. And many Christians and indeed individuals join various causes that fight against certain things that bring about more justice, right? Justice for the unborn, care for refugee image bearers, perhaps racial reconciliation between people of different ethnic backgrounds. But the problem we find at times as sinful human beings is that we we cannot ultimately bring forth a true and just society by our own collective efforts. We find that politicians and policies fail us and and we find at times our hopes dash this side of heaven when it comes to a just society. But into this world, beloved, of unrest and shattered hopes, God speaks this word of comfort to his people. And God himself holds before this world his servant as the solution to humanity's fall. 
this servant of God will not only establish justice and righteousness and holiness into this world, but he will be gentle and he will be kind towards his own people. He will bring forth righteousness in this earth and he will bring forth salvation to his people. In this first servant song, beloved, they, they kind of have this progression where we get more and more details about who this servant is. But in this first song, we see these things. We see the servant's purpose. We see his personal care. We see his power. And we see his perseverance. And before we dig into those points about the servant, we just want to consider again very briefly uh, the context here of this first servant song. The context, as we've been learning through this series in Isaiah, is that this is the time of comfort, right? Chapters 40 through 55 speak of the comfort God is now bestowing upon his people. What's been the story? Well, God has saved his people Israel from Egypt. You remember, he brought them out of chains and darkness. He led them through the wilderness. Those 40 years, he brought them into his promised land. God has been faithful to his word. But you remember the people of God were sent into exile because they violated the terms of the covenant that they swore at Mount Sinai when they said to the Lord, all of this law we will do. And so for a season, the people of Israel, they received temporal curses because they were not faithful. And so they have no land of rest in exile. They have no place of worship. They have no king like David who could protect them from their enemies. They're vulnerable. But according to God's original promise made before Exodus all the way back to Abraham, God said 400 years before giving of the law that he would be faithful. For a season, Israel would be chopped down like a tree. But Isaiah 11 says a shoot would come from the stump of Jesse, who would be the savior of the world. And so because of God's original promise of gospel all the way back to Abraham, the Lord now says in chapter 40 to his unfaithful people, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This comfort will be secured and attained for God's people, not by their faithfulness, but by the faithfulness of this servant who is to come. And we come now to our first point, his purpose, verse 1 and verse 4. And here notice God is speaking to the world about his servant. In contrast with chapter 41, uh, God there in chapter 41 at the end, notice he uses the same introduction of that word behold, and he's speaking of the idols in 41. He says, behold, these idols, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. In chapter 41, God is challenging the idols of the people, uh, and he's saying, hey, if you're truly you know, gods, why don't you speak about the things of the past? Why don't you speak about the things of the future? And of course, idols are nothing, they're lifeless, and so they're unable to help, they're unable to speak. And so in verse 24, God mocks them. He mocks the idols, and he mocks the people who are trusting in these idols. He says, behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. In contrast to this, chapter 41 opens up with another behold. Behold what? Behold my servant. When God says to us, beloved, behold, he wants us to pause. He wants us to consider what follows. 
this is like the big, bold letters on a newspaper. Take note of this information. It's important. And God is saying, consider, behold, fix your attention on my servant. Now, in the book of Isaiah, this title, uh, Servant of the Lord, has a few different reference points. Even as we heard last week, God would actually raise up a pagan a ruler named Cyrus who would be his servant to deliver Israel out of Babylon. Moreover, the people of Israel as a whole are referred to as well as the servant of the Lord. Chapter 41, verse 8, we read this. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you are my servant. You see, Israel was called to be God's faithful servant who would be his witness to the nations. Israel was to be a holy nation who proclaimed God's word, who lived in such a way that when people looked at the nation of Israel, they would see something of the goodness and righteousness of God. But Israel could not maintain justice and righteousness even within her own land. And so God says of his people in verse 19, who is blind like my servant or deaf as my messenger, whom I send. Here's the point. Cyrus and Israel were God's servants, but they were not the servant of the Lord because they failed to bring people that rest and justice that God intended. But the scriptures testify there would be someone who would come and he would faithfully do what Israel failed to do, what Adam failed to do, what we failed to do as human beings. He would come as the servant of the Lord. During Advent season, beloved, we celebrate as the Christian church the servant of God, the servant of servants who has come into human history, our Lord Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 6, although he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Here in our text, in verse 1, we are told God delights in this servant. He delights in him. And two times, you remember, in Jesus' life, the Father publicly and openly declares his pleasure in his Son, in who his Son is, in what his Son does at the baptism of Jesus, at the transfiguration of Jesus, a voice booms from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's Isaiah 42.1. This is the servant of the Lord who brings glory to God. What will this servant's task be? Well, Isaiah tells us many times here, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now justice not only has to do with, you know, punishing evil, but justice here has even a broader scope. This servant, he is going to restore God's original design for humanity. He is going to bring into this sin-cursed world justice and righteousness and his blessing as far as the curse is found, as we sing. He will be greater than King David because he's going to rule in righteousness and his throne will have no end. How can this servant bring forth justice in all of the world? Well, notice it's because of the power of God and the spirit of God that's upon him. He says the spirit is going to be upon him 
and God himself will lead him by the hand. You remember how even before that first Christmas morning, our Lord Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And after he was born and after he grew up like a little boy in this world, we're told that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. The Spirit opened the mind of Jesus to the scriptures that told him about his mission. Indeed, the Spirit came in his ministry and empowered Jesus for his ministry as an adult. And the Spirit was with Jesus even at the cross, as we're told in Hebrews. By the eternal Spirit, he offered himself a sacrifice to God. The Spirit was Jesus' closest companion all throughout his life, empowering him to bring forth this justice in the world. Beloved, this servant here is put before us as the answer to our human predicament. Again, in contrast to the idols that cannot help us, the things of this world, even the rulers of this world that cannot help us, this servant is the answer. We're reminded even in our day, beloved, that the right politician or the right policy or the right political platform cannot secure the justice that we're longing for in this world. The enforcement even of God's law in society cannot change the human heart that is fallen. Even justice, the sight of the world, when it's done, is a beautiful thing in God's sight, but it's always imperfect, isn't it? Even the sight of heaven, right? A, a murderer might be sentenced to life in prison, but that loved one who has died cannot be brought back from the dead. An abuser might be locked away for their crimes, but that abused child or spouse still has to carry around the trauma throughout their life. But God says to us this morning, behold my servant, consider him because he will come and he will make all things new. He will bring God's blessing back into this world. He will comfort the afflicted. He will restore this fallen order. He will tear down unjust systems and men who are proud and who afflict the needy. He will bring righteousness and the coastlands will wait for his law. This is his purpose, and we're going to come back to it. But let's consider verses 2 and 3 now, his personal care. We see his purpose, but notice verse 2, his personal care. First, notice, beloved, this servant's humility. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Now, this doesn't mean that this servant won't preach and teach and tell others to do the same. But the point here is that he will have this level of restraint and he will not draw attention to himself in the wrong way. You know, we often like to be on center stage to promote ourselves. We all struggle, right, with that. We want our names to be great. We want people to hear our opinions. We want people to obey our voice. But Jesus doesn't come on the scene like Cyrus, stepping on people using his power, barking out orders. He doesn't put all of his healings on Instagram Live for the world to see. He doesn't make his every opinion known on Twitter. But Jesus came into this world, God in human flesh, in such humility. He lived such a quiet life, even to the point of his earthly ministry, 
And even in his ministry, he went to the cross and he ended his, his life at the cross alone, dying outside the city as the Lamb of God. In fact, the Gospel writer Matthew in Matthew 12 points to Isaiah 42 here to show how Jesus often healed the sick in secret, telling them not to go and tell people what happened to them. Such humility but he's not only humble, beloved, he is a gentle, he is a gentle savior. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. These words are good news for us this morning. A bruised reed he will not break. You know, reeds are those tall grass-like plants that often sprout up near the wetlands and reeds are fragile. They have hollow stems, and so they're easily knocked over by the wind or by an animal or by a human being. And once a, a reed is broken, it cannot be fixed. You know, other, other plants can repair themselves or be pruned, but not reeds. Once they're bruised and bent, they're quite hopeless. But Isaiah tells us when Jesus takes a walk through his garden and he sees one of his bruised reeds, he doesn't just break off that reed and toss it to the side to keep his garden pristine. No, that's what the Pharisees did in the New Testament, right? They, they were not patient with sinners and people who were hurting. They often did the opposite of what Jesus did. They put more laws on people's backs. They didn't help the bruised reeds. But Jesus looks at those who are bruised and bent and ready to break and he comes to them, and he gives them strength. That was Isaiah 40, wasn't it? To him who has no might, he increases strength. That's Matthew 10, isn't it? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We see Jesus interacting with bruised reeds all throughout his ministry. The leper in Matthew chapter 8 came to Jesus, and he was a bruised reed. He had been bruised by this terrible disease of leprosy. He was cast off by society, destined to a life of misery. But he came to Jesus, and Jesus showed him compassion. The woman at the well in John 4 was a bruised reed. She had been in multiple marriages. She was living in a sinful situation when Jesus met her. She was bruised by her own sins, but her heart thirsted for satisfaction, and Jesus came, and he gave to her himself as living water. This morning, beloved, are we not all bruised reeds in different ways? All of us have been bruised in this sin-cursed world by different things, bruised by broken relationships, bruised by betrayal, perhaps, bruised by childhood traumas, bruised by our own bad decisions, our own sinful decisions. We've been bruised in this world. Isaiah reminds us that Jesus came to this earth not to break those who were bowed down and bruised, but to give strength and healing by his gospel. In fact, Isaiah 53 says that this servant, Jesus, was actually bruised and crushed for our iniquities, so that by his stripes we might be healed. 
Jesus willingly endured such hostility and suffering against himself so that he could save us from our sins and become a sympathetic and merciful high priest in the service of God. And so the good news is this, even though we all might get bruised in this life in different ways, even if we come to church bruised this morning, if we belong to Jesus, he will not let us be utterly broken. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Because Jesus gives strength to his bruised reeds. Isaiah tells us, parallel to that, a faintly burning wick he will not quench or snuff out. This phrase refers to those who feel like they're barely hanging on in this life, like a faintly burning wick, like a candle at the very end of its life where there's not a strong flame, but it's just, you know, barely flickering with a little bit of smoke coming off. Now, we like to, you know, light candles at our house, especially during the wintertime and the Christmas time, and, and usually I'm the one that kind of puts them out at the end of the day, but when I see one that's kind of at the very end of its life, you know, I'm quick to just maybe just blow it out and replace it and just kind of move on to the next fresh candle. In our Christian life, you know, we could kind of be harsh with people who are weak. You know, why doesn't this person just understand this fine point of theology? Why can't they just change already? Why can't they just obey God? Right? And we forget, don't we, our own sins. We forget that we are often faintly burning wicks. In his ministry, beloved, Jesus was stern towards the wolves and the proud, but he was very gentle and kind to those who knew their weakness. And God doesn't see one of his children who is struggling for life and say, okay, I'm done with you. You're out. <laughs> But he, he comes to the faintly burning wicks of his church and he trims that wick and he pours oil on that wick and he sees the, he sees the flames that are flickering there and he, and he fans them into flame again so they might have life again that he gives. Again, in his ministry, we see this. Jesus shows us this. The father in Mark chapter 9 who had a demon-possessed son was a faintly burning wick. You remember, he struggled to have total faith in Jesus and his ability to heal. And what did he say to Jesus as a faintly burning wick? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. The disciple Thomas was a faintly burning wick. He couldn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He needed to see, he needed to touch Jesus for himself. And Christ offered himself to him so that he might no longer doubt, but believe. Beloved, if you feel like a faintly burning wick this morning, call out to your sympathetic Savior, Jesus, because he continues to stoop down to us right where we're at this morning to give us life and strength by his Spirit. And when we cry out to him, even with a weak faith, even with a faith that still has some doubts, he meets us to give us more of himself, to give us more life. Jesus is the strength and the power for the bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks of this world. And because he is the God-man, empowered by the Spirit, 
he is able to help us in our time of need. We see here his purpose. We see his personal care. Finally, we see here, beloved, Jesus' power and perseverance. Notice what Isaiah says, verse 7. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. See, those are the same words that just described us about being faint and discouraged. But, but this servant won't get discouraged. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is going to kind of hover above our sufferings in this world, but it speaks of this servant's resilience in the face of difficulty. Jesus was subject to the same temptations and pressures that we are faced with, but the point is he will not crumble underneath them like us, right? In our desire to live justly, in our desire to follow God, we struggle. We lose hope. We get discouraged. We, we, we don't see fruit, and so we want to just give up. But he will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in all of the earth. And the good news of Christmas is that God didn't just send into this world another sinner like us to commiserate with us, but he sent to us someone who could pull us out of this mess, Jesus. And Luke 9, 51 says this, Jesus, he set his face like flint to Jerusalem to go and accomplish his mission to bring justice. And first, verse 7, this highlights how this is justice between God and man. Look at the imagery there of deliverance. To open the eyes of the blind. To bring prisoners out of their prison cell. Christ went to the cross of Calvary, fully God and fully man, to satisfy the justice of God toward your sin and my sin, so that we might be given eyes to behold the glory of God once again in the face of Jesus Christ. So that we might live this life no longer in chains to our sin, and subject to the devil, but we might be liberated and set free by his gospel. Second, Jesus, he comes to bring justice and peace between man and his fellow man. His goal is to bring this righteous reign and rule to the ends of the earth. Notice the shift in speech in verse 6. First, God is speaking to this world about his servant, and then he speaks directly to his servant. We get to hear an intra-Trinitarian conversation here. And he speaks to the servant about his mission. We're reminded in this portion of chapter 40 of Isaiah about how God is creator who governs and controls all things. But the point here is almighty God in his power will use this to uphold his servant and equip him for his task. The servant's perseverance, you might say, is based on God's protection. I will take you by the hand and keep you and again, God says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. In other words, through this servant, the nations will be brought into a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, we see for a little while, God narrow in his promise on the people of Israel. But that was never God's original intention and purpose, right? Stretching all the way back to Abraham before he said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the new covenant in Christ's blood is what brings this promise to fulfillment. That's why we're here worshiping today from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different nations, because of this promise of Isaiah fulfilled in the blood of Christ. 
God bringing blessing to the nations because the servant has come. He satisfied God's justice. And even now his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. This is what God is doing in this world, beloved. This is what he invites us to receive and proclaim as his people. Well, what's our response to these things this morning? You're hearing this, and what is God calling you to do in response? First, verse 10, God says, sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing. Celebrate what God has done. Marvel with your lips and with your heart about what God has done in history through his servant. You know, whenever God acted in the Bible, for his people in a new way and in a glorious way it often came with a new song right after the exodus you remember they sang the song of moses remember after god brought them through the wilderness in deuteronomy 32 god gave to them a new song to sing well as new covenant christians beloved who celebrate jesus we sing a new song we sing of his first advent don't we We sing of the cross. We sing of the empty tomb. We sing of the ascension. We sing of the spirit that has come. We sing of his second coming. We sing to the Lord a new song. This is why we need a new song. A new song for a new covenant. God has done a new thing. And that's why when you come to the New Testament and you see the first advent of Jesus, what does it burst forth with? It bursts forth with music. The angels sing, glory to God in the highest. Mary sings her Magnificat. Simeon sings. Zechariah sings. Even now we're told in Revelation 5, 9, heaven bursts forth with music. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And so today, beloved, on this Lord's Day and throughout this Advent season, may we open our mouths and sing to the Lord joining the chorus of angels in heaven as we sing of the servant of God who has come to bring us salvation, to bring God's justice and righteousness to the ends of the earth. And finally, beloved, as those who are united to this sympathetic servant by faith, we are called as the body of Christ to be his faithful servants here on earth. We are called as the church to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that means, like our Lord Jesus, we are to have compassion on the bruised reeds and the faintly burning wicks that God places in our midst. We're not to magnify people's faults, but see the sparks of life even in our brothers and in our sisters and help cultivate them by God's wisdom. And so, beloved, behold this Advent season, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can bring true comfort and perfect justice into this world. May we sing to him a new song and declare his deeds among the nations. Amen. Let's pray. Lead our great God in heaven, we join with the praises of heaven this morning and declare worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy are you, King Jesus, to receive all honor and glory and praise. For you are the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us to behold your wondrous works this Advent season. By the power of the Holy Spirit, grant that we might live as faithful servants who declare your praise and who look for the coming of Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved, let's respond to what God calls us to do, which is to sing. And let's sing together number 456, a beautiful hymn that celebrates the sympathy and closeness of Jesus. Jesus, what a friend of sinners, senses one through three and five.